Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with those pop-up vaccine clinics that have been showing up in the Fraser Health Authority in the past few days. Lots of people scrambling to get the COVID-19 vaccine showing up at these pop-up clinics. If they hear by word of mouth, maybe they get a phone call from a friend. Hey, you better get down here and get this shot. There's been some chaos. There's been some anger at some of these clinics. You saw people lining up overnight in a couple of places, anticipating there could be more of these pop-up clinics today. They even had the police out this morning at uh, Bear Creek Park. All right, let's discuss this situation now uh, with my guest, Liberal MLA, Renee Merrifield. She is the BC Liberals health critic, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Renee, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me. Very okay, happy what, to be here. What do you think about what's going on here with these pop-up clinics? Oh, this just is not the way it should be. I was watching some of the media footage and some of the, you know, different uh, photographs and videos that were taken yesterday, and I was so disheartened. You know, we should have an orderly process that is, you know, clearly communicated and um, ultimately equitable. And this just wasn't it. This is a system that favors those that have transportation, have some free time, that have access to information like Twitter or WhatsApp. And and those are, are, are probably not the ones that need it the most and that are in the highest transmission uh, areas as well as roles and jobs. Okay, Adrian Dix, the health minister, questioned about this yesterday. He admits they could have done a better job with these pop-up clinics. Let's listen to briefly to what he had to say here. Here's the health minister. Could have done better in terms of communications. Let me acknowledge that. Uh, and uh, we're working to do that. Okay, at the same time, though, he says, look, we're trying to get these vaccines out as quick as possible in these hot spots where there's been big outbreaks in some of these real hot spot neighborhoods. And I guess they figured this is like the fastest way to distribute this vaccine where it's where it's badly needed. And at the same time, he's saying they could have done a better job. He's also saying that, look, we got thousands of vaccines into people in these hotspot neighborhoods. So, I mean, does the end justify the means here? Well, I'm going to give a little bit of a twist on that, that we've had a year to get ready and a year to to actually have a system that will work. And we also already have a distribution system in place, and it's called our pharmacies. You know, every other jurisdiction across Canada is utilizing their pharmacies for vaccination. And they can do across B.C. 442,000 vaccines a day. So if we want to pat ourselves on the back and get every single dose out, we need to start using the distribution systems that actually don't create confusion, that don't allow people to congregate by the thousands and actually can with pinpoint accuracy, deliver into hotspots. Yeah, it's like people are now showing up because they've heard maybe rumors of a pop-up clinic is maybe going to be operated. And there's reports this morning that there were a few hundred people lined up at Newton Athletic Park this morning, even though the Fraser Health Authority letters later said there would be no pop-up clinic there today. Uh, we've heard about the police being called to some of some of these places like so people are desperate to get the vaccine, which is which is great. But so you're saying, though, that people should get appointments 
through, through pharmacies instead. Yeah. Okay. So how would that work? Well, like, pharmacy, if, like if you want to target if you want to target hotspot neighborhoods, how would you do that through pharmacies? Well, pharmacies have access to one of the most sophisticated systems available, which is the PharmaNet system. They have data, they have analytics, they know where you live. Uh, every time you get a prescription filled, you have to give your your current address and your um, and your postal code. We could easily utilize that system to book appointments and to and to do this in a very orderly fashion. I just I want to remind your listeners that on you know the Wednesday before a holiday weekend, we gave our pharmacists forty eight thousand doses and said you need to get it into these arms and these age groups, and they rose to the challenge. They had two days before that vaccine expired, and they rose to the challenge and succeeded. We gave them over a million doses back in the fall of the flu vaccine and said you have six weeks to get these you know, 1 million doses into these arms, and they did it. I, I have no idea why we want to create confusion, why we want to create anger and disappointment at a time where we need to have people excited and, and thrilled to get their vaccine and, you know, taking their selfies rather than taking videos of lineups. Okay, so you think that these pop-up clinics, they should just scrap this idea, just stop doing the pop-up clinics then? Correct. Absolutely. If they have a hotspot delivered to, and, and not just AstraZeneca, the pharmacies can handle all of the vaccines that we have available, as shown by every other jurisdiction across Canada. So if we have hotspots delivered to those hotspots and to those, those pharmacies in those hotspots, as many vaccines as we have, they will book appropriately and they won't have to turn people away. Okay, speaking to liberal health critic Renee Merrifield about the pop-up clinics that we've seen in the last few days and some of the confusion around them. What about some other confusion on the second dose of the vaccine? Like you mentioned that a lot of people have received their first dose, especially of the AstraZeneca at pharmacies. Uh, will they, like I've heard from people who've said that they don't know how they're going to get the follow-up dose. Like some people have already been booked and scheduled for a second dose and others have not. What are you hearing on that? I am hearing confusion, and largely that's because the pharmacies were told to book a second dose, as well as the government has said, well, even if you have a, an appointment booked, we want you to register through the system. That is just showing the flaws in the government system. The government system is not connected to PharmaNet, so despite the fact that every pharmacist across BC is connected to one another and to the health authorities, for whatever yeah. reason, when the government designed our booking system for vaccination, they didn't connect it to anything. So people literally have to go in and book twice, which is, I, I think, just belies the fact that this government does not have a plan and does not have a way forward. When well, I asked the minister about this directly, he indicated yeah. that, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to back to people in August. Okay, well... I don't know. I mean, I've heard the government say that they're ahead of schedule as well. I mean, and if you take a look at some of the numbers that the government has released, they say they've got 180,000 vaccines have been distributed through pharmacies, through the AstraZeneca. Um, they're, they've uh, injected a lot of frontline workers. 40,000 frontline workers under that program have received the shot. And they say there's millions more Pfizer doses on the way. Um, so this is going to rapidly ramp up here in the next few days. So, you know, the government will paint a brighter picture of, of what's going on. But so at the end of the day, like what sort of letter grade would you give the government here on this effort so far? Because the government says they're they're ahead of schedule and they're doing great. But what do you think? 
I think that we have, and I think that we should all be proud of the fact that we've got 1.6, almost 1.7 million vaccines into arms. Absolutely. And I celebrate that. Where I'm sounding the alarm bell and have been really since January is the fact that by the end of June, we will have been delivered by the federal government and then some up to six million and possibly more vaccines. That means we still have 4.3 million to get out the door in two months, despite the fact that we've gotten 1.7 out in five months. So that's where I I know we need to ramp up. I know we need a a better distribution system and we have a distribution system. So why we want to reinvent the wheel is beyond me. Okay. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. You bet. I I appreciate it, too. Thank you. Liberal MLA Renee Merrifield there. She's the official opposition health critic. Let's talk about sick pay in British Columbia. The B.C. government been pushing the feds on this one for some time. This is a federal responsibility. Let's get going with a federal sick pay program across the country. Premier John Horgan indicating yesterday he's disappointed that that has not happened with the Justin Trudeau government. He says that B.C. getting ready to go it alone here with a standalone provincial sick pay program. Here's Horgan speaking yesterday. Uh, We were disappointed to see no progress, and therefore we've gone back to the shelf and taken the programs that we were working on here in British Columbia, and we're trying to get those up to speed to fill the gaps. Okay, John Horgan speaking yesterday, B.C. getting set to go ahead with its own sick pay program. Let's discuss now with my guest, Anna Gerard, communications and digital coordinator with the Worker Solidarity Network. Anna, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Okay, first of all, a sick pay program, why is that needed right now? Can you make the case for it? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think it's been needed for a long time, um, even before the pandemic, and it will be needed after. Um, A lot of workers are in situations where they don't have paid sick leave. I mean, according to a a BCC CPA study from late 2019, uh, it revealed 81% of workers earning below 40,000 a year don't have paid sick days. It's a lot of people. Um, And that's, you know, predominantly um, people um, that are women, black, indigenous and and, uh, immigrant families that are made vulnerable by this system. Um, and it's it's a huge problem because, you know, we hear from people all the time. They, they're scared to call in sick to work because they might be fired. We've heard from people that have been fired. Um, people aren't believed. It's a huge barrier uh, for people in protecting protecting their health and especially during this pandemic. So um, I think the premier acknowledges that it is, you know, it's it's late, but he's under a yeah. lot of pressure and, and sees the importance of a, of a timely program. Yeah, I think he is under a lot of pressure. It does seem to have uh, turned into a priority at the provincial level here, for sure. Like, when you talk about people who don't have paid sick days available to them, and it's, and it's a lot of people, as you described there, what about some of the current federal programs that are in place, like the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit? Is that not still there for people right now? Yeah, the CRSB is available for folks, um, but in terms of of applying for it. I mean, it, there have been gaps revealed in the program, um, as the, the Premier acknowledged, and a lot of labor organizations have acknowledged as well. We need something that's going to be, you know, seamless, accessible, universal, immediate, um, and be, you know, appropriate financial compensation for people. Um, so, yeah, it, it needs to be immediate. And, and one of the things that we're, we're calling for um, is to have it be employer paid because, the only way it's going to be effective is if people use it and they don't have to navigate like a application criteria pro- process. There shouldn't be any questions. So um, what we're calling for is for it to be employer paid so that it's on the worker's next paycheck. 
um, and then it's immediate, seamless, it's the fastest and easiest way to do that. And then people don't have to worry about whether or not they can make their rent because they had to be forced to take a sick day to look after oh, themselves. Okay. So if yeah. it was employer paid, then the way that would work is you phone in sick, you don't show up for work, you just keep the, your boss has to just keep paying you. I mean, right. essentially, that's the, it seems to be that it's it's the quickest way to get that, that money to work. Like for how long, though? Like how long could you stay off sick and keep, and keep getting paid? Well, it depends. What we're calling for is during a global health crisis like this pandemic for 21 days, but for ongoingly, um, permanently, we'd like to Whoa. see it be seven days a year for a full-time employee. Um, okay. I know in Ontario that they've, they're calling for, for three days. We don't think that's that's sufficient. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, at least seven days a year. Okay, so, but for 21 days, like you're saying, that would be the interim measure during the pandemic? Like, I, I thought it was 14 days to recover from COVID, though. Yeah, I mean, we want to give people that flexibility. Um, yeah. so, I mean, at this point, we, we're trying to aim high, and we're hoping that uh, that um, the government will, will understand the realities of working people. I think throughout this pandemic, you know, we've been largely making the, the realities of workers invisible. Um, people are, are mm. being, you know like let go with the, the circuit breaker situation and, uh, you know, people are scrambling. So I think it's really important. And, and we've seen that it's, you know, it's, it's faster to get, get money to businesses uh, than it is to, uh, to workers. So that's why we think it should be employer paid. We've seen uh, yeah. different businesses throughout the pandemic that are, you know, some people are actually raking record profits. Um, some people aren't, um, but some small businesses do have paid sick days. It just varies so widely. Um, that we think that this is the fastest and most effective way to get it to workers. And um, we do think that there are, you know, there can be subsidies and, and rebate programs like we've seen in the Yukon for, for sick days uh, for employers. Um, but, yeah, we definitely believe that having it be employer okay. paid is the best route. Okay. Speaking to Anna Gerard about sick pay in B.C., looks like the B.C. government working on a standalone provincial program for sick pay in the province. Um, what about the potential for abuse like if your boss is required your employer is required to pay you when you're off sick what is the potential for people to say <clears throat> you know I'm, I'm sick for a couple of weeks and uh you know just take a couple of weeks off even if you're not sick yeah i mean that is a concern that's been that's been raised absolutely um but like we've seen with people that are protected by a union they have sick days and we haven't seen that be abused they take it when they need it i mean everyone's human and to reserve you know paid sick leave for people that are in a higher income bracket and say that's that's makes sense as a right for them but not for others i, I think that's classes so making that assumption you know that people are lazy and they're going to abuse the system i think is uh yeah, some, is some people will won't they i mean it's not going to be everybody government it's not going to be everybody but some people will yeah i mean i think at this point we've been trusting people to um to do us right for yeah. you know protecting uh the public and and their coworkers and everything but uh they don't necessarily have that infrastructure in place to even have right. that, that option. So, Like the system that we got now, would you describe it as kind of like a, like a patchwork system? Like for people who've got a job, let's say it's a union job, like a typical union contract will, what, you would have uh, a certain number of paid sick days per year? Is that what's typical? Uh, yeah, I guess it depends yeah. what, what they would negotiate with the employer. It does vary yeah. from place to place. Right, but then there's a lot of people, like what percentage... What percentage of the workforce overall does not have any sick pay? Do we know? I would say at least 50%. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. What is your read of where the government's going on this? Like, you've made the case to make it employer paid, but Mm -hmm. is it your sense that this government wants to control it themselves? Um, Yeah, I mean, they're talking about implementing it through through a workspace, through a program. Um, But I think that it's so important right now. Uh, We have a real opportunity here to put through uh, sick day legislation that's effective both in the short and long term to protect people across the province. Um, So I think what we need to do really is to treat this as a a right um, so that it is effective and uh, implement it in the Employment Standards Act. Right. And how confident are you that this government is is going to deliver on this? Like this is... I don't know, this has been kind of a finger-pointing exercise here for the past few weeks with most of the provinces saying, well, this is federal jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. the feds should do it. Now we're seeing more and more provinces saying, well, okay, we'll do it ourselves. Now I thought Horgan sort of clearly indicated that this is on in B.C. Is that your read of it? Do you you think this government's going to deliver on it? Yeah, yeah, I do. We feel hopeful about that. I think think the premier understands the urgency, and um, we look forward to to seeing what what comes out. Um, And we hope that it it passes quickly so I can get get to workers. Okay, Anna, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. No worries. Have a good day. Okay, thank you. Anna Gerard there with the Worker Solidarity Network making the case for sick pay in British Columbia. B.C. government clearly looking at this now. They say they're on it, uh, frustrated that the feds aren't doing it. Looks like the province getting set to go it alone. Who should pay for it, though? Should this be a government-funded program, or do you think that employers should pay their workers when they're off sick. You just heard Anna Gerard there make the case for that. Let's make this an employer paid benefit. You're off sick, you still get paid. Maybe 21 days while the pandemic's going on, seven days a year. It'll be interesting to see how the government designs this. This is a complicated issue for sure. I'm not sure how quickly they can get something like this out the door. Let's talk about electric cycles and scooters now. Man, are these things getting more and more popular. Electric bikes, electric scooters, electric bikes that look like motorcycles in some cases, or they look like Vespa scooters. You see them more and more often. I'll tell you what, I can understand why people are looking at them. Small, convenient, uh, seem to be getting better and better quality with the battery life for sure. I was even thinking of getting one myself, but there is a lot of confusion and debates over the regulations around these vehicles how do they, how are they licensed insured where are they allowed to be driven let's discuss all this now with my guest we got a great panel for you steve miloshev is the owner of motorina electric cycles steve thanks for coming on thank you for inviting me yeah you it's bet steve. thank you also on the line is glenn sherman he's a member of the board of the electric riders association of bc glenn thank you for doing this good morning Hey, Glenn, let me go to you first. Could you briefly explain some of the, I mean, this gets kind of complicated, some of this stuff, but, you know, what is the main debate or issue around these vehicles? I mean, is there is there a fight over the licensing and the, and the insurance around these? Well, there is. Uh, there was no uh, confusion uh, 10 years ago when I started riding uh, an electric bike, scooter-style electric bike, uh, and they grew in popularity. There were many on the on the road, but uh, fairly recently, uh, riders have been ticketed for being in breach of the Motor Vehicle Act because the bikes are not insured. Well, you can't get them insured. They won't uh, insure them. Um, so what happens is people have been riding them uninsured, in some cases uh, not carrying uh, you know driver's licenses, and that... Uh, culminated in an event where 
a gentleman named Mr. Gadban was a, uh, given a ticket. Yeah. That ticket went uh, all the way to the Court of Appeal in this province, where a majority of the Court of Appeal uh, made a decision that this style of bike, uh, he was riding an XMR, but this style of bike um, is not a motor-assisted cycle. And the basis for that decision is that uh, the actual uh, pedaling of the uh, of the bikes is not contemplated so uh people do use them of course without the pedal i mean they have pedals on them but they they ride them without using the pedals and uh, that put them on the wrong side of the law according to the court of appeal so where things stand now is that court of appeal decision is uh, on its way to the supreme court of canada if the supreme court of canada grants leave to have it heard Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is this has gone to the highest court in the province here, and who knows? Maybe it's going to go even higher. Okay, Steve, tell me a little bit about Motorina Electric Cycles, your business there, and you sell these. You sell these XMR bikes, right? Um, yes, we sell XMR, but uh, we sell uh, for for eighteen years of our business. We have sold more than twenty different uh, uh, models. Yeah. Uh, not only XMR, but some of them resemble, resemble Vespa style. Yeah. Some of them are smaller, but uh, nothing is bigger than XMR. Uh, we started this business in 2003, uh, immediately after uh, power-assisted bicycle amendment was enacted in the Motor Vehicle Act. And it was enacted at the same time in British Columbia, which was the first province along with uh, Quebec to uh, enact the amendment of the Motor Vehicle Act. Uh, I was very careful, and I started correspondence with the Transport Canada right in the beginning uh, to see which one is uh, uh, legal. And I have still keep all the correspondence with Transport Canada. And, uh, I, and I was... Uh, uh, I, I had to make sure that it's, everything is compliant because it was very uh, tricky territory in the beginning because we were basically breaking the ground. Yeah. And uh, once we brought uh, the electric scooters, some of the uh, public, they started uh, expressing their uh, uh, you know, uh, opinion that they are too big and uh, they cannot be bicycles. And uh, Transport Canada... Uh, um, inspected uh, our business uh, a couple of years later, and uh, they checked them for the speed, and, uh, and then I asked them, uh, what about the size of these bikes? Because some of the public is uh, actually expressing uh, their, uh, their opinion that they're too big. And uh, actually, the answer of the, of, uh, that was the chief enforcement uh, officer in the Transport Canada for legality importation. He, his word was literally, they may look like a Cadillac, as long as they have paddles and they go 32 kilometers an hour, they're bicycles. Oh, okay, that's very that's very interesting. Like, for, let me go let me go back to um, let me go back to Glenn. Glenn, so at the end of the day, if if the vehicle has pedals. Uh, and it goes, was I think he's at under 32 kilometers. Is it under 32 kilometers an hour? Is that the cutoff? That's the cutoff, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that makes, if, 
if it fits that category, you don't have to have license, you don't have to have insurance, correct? Uh, well, that might have been the case, uh, but yeah. for a decision of our Court of Appeal, yeah. which uh, has specified that these are not motor-assisted cycles. So yeah. a motor-assisted cycle, like Steve points out, has that 32 kilometer an hour limitation. They're, uh, you know, generally they're in a weight class, which is, uh, you know, a little heavier than bikes, obviously. But it's yeah. got a 500-watt motor. You can actually upgrade your battery system to a lithium battery to extend your range and uh, so that's essentially what what these things are designed for is, of course, um, you know, the simple and inexpensive form of communi- of, uh, of transportation. But right. uh, Steve and I are getting letters and emails from uh, people. Uh, one gentleman is a fully diagnosed autistic person with fine motor skills disability, and he wants to be able to rely on one of these bikes. We've had uh, emails and letters from uh, elderly people that uh, see this as the best alternative for them. Yeah, no, I, I can understand the interest. There's a, there's a lot of interest in it for sure. Uh, let me ask you real quickly before we take a break, and then we'll take some phone calls on this. Glenn, what about these... Um e-scooters like a lot of these look like a kid's toy like the the razor type scooters but i see more and more of these these motor these electrified motorized scooters what what is the legal uh the legal status of those you know the ones i mean uh i think i do uh, those yeah. are the stand-up kick scooters right yeah yeah like i've seen i've seen a lot of people just zooming down the streets on these ones electrified ones are those legal uh well at the moment uh the province um is looking at how to deal with them. They've created uh, in six municipalities throughout the province uh, kind of a, 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 they've opened the door for the use of these things so they can examine how they fit in and presumably they're going to regulate them in some fashion. That's of course what we're asking um, Patricia Boyle, the Assistant Deputy Minister and Superintendent of Motor Vehicles to do with uh, our our style of scooters that we're concerned about. Yeah, no, it is a really interesting area of law for sure, and there's a lot of interest because a lot of people are looking at these things and thinking they look they look great. They want to try them. Steve Miloshev is from Motorino Electric Cycles, Glenn Sherman Electric Riders Association. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We talk about Canada's largest homeless camp in Strathcona Park. Today is clear-out day. This is the day that the tents, the the people who are camping in the park are supposed to pack up and leave. Let's get an update now with Jamie McLaren. He's a social justice lawyer and a Strathcona neighborhood resident. Jamie. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on. What's the latest there? Is the park being cleared out today? Well, I just took a walk through the park uh, a few moments ago, and it's pretty quiet there. There's um, the east side of the park, which is fenced in. Uh, There are certain portions that are without tents, and I think that was a strategic, um, but there's certainly a good many tents left in 
in most of the fenced-in areas. So there's lots of tents. The last uh, head count I saw was about 100 people uh, still still residing in the park. So um, some some moving to be done, I guess. Okay. Is there any indication that some people will refuse to leave? Yeah, I've heard um, through the media anecdotal reports uh, and direct reports from people saying they 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 don't want to leave and they they refuse to leave um, willingly, I guess. And, and so that will be the the challenge, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I don't expect or I hope we don't see much in the way of uh, tension and and any kind of anything approaching violence tomorrow um, with yeah. the the deadline. Um, you know. The parks board will have to uh, seek an injunction to to compel people to move, and that will take a bit of time. So, I'm I'm hopeful and expecting that that things go fairly smooth or quiet tomorrow. Um, okay, when is it? When is the de- When is the deadline tomorrow? What time is the park supposed to be cleared out tomorrow? 10 a.m. I believe. Wow. Okay. But so, you know, looking at the park, there's just no way that they can clear out the park by 10 a.m. tomorrow, and, and that presumes that people will leave willingly. So there's there's certainly going to be a few people at least who don't leave willingly. So they're they're just going to have to contend with that, and that's not unexpected. Yeah. Okay. Let's have a listen to David Eby here, the Attorney General, Jamie, and of course the Minister for Housing, and here he is commenting about the current situation in the park. It's such a delicate balance, and the happy news is that the uh, folks at the site have been working with outreach workers now for um, months, and they've been uh, filling out applications for housing, and there's an increasing uh, a number of, uh, of uh, folks who have been identified that uh, need different supports that are going to be provided to them and accommodated in relation to their housing. Uh, our hope is, and, and the way things have been going, um, is that folks are going to voluntarily move inside. Um, and uh, and uh, that's that's what all our work is really focused on at this point. Okay. Well, they hope this is this is voluntary tomorrow when the deadline arrives for clearing out the park. But as you just heard from Jamie McLaren, sounds like there, there's still a lot of people in the park, and I guess we'll see what happens tomorrow. Jamie, how long has this been going on? This it's it feels like it's been like you know it's been over a year, right? Yeah, about the middle of June of last year, so almost yeah. a year. So almost a, a year. long haul for sure, and, and everyone's quite exhausted. You know, I think the, the key tomorrow and the, and the days that follow is that, you know, any move out is done in a respectful, sensitive way, um, not engaging police at all if possible. You know, that's going to be the, the tensions will rise around compelled displacement. And so, you know, it's just... I think the governments have done a pretty good job so far, not perfect, but pretty good job so far, so finding places for people to live that's safe and, um, you know, as opposed to this very unsafe environment, but also um, being, you know, consulting with people um, about what they need and where they should go. Right. And the the order to clear out the park by 10 a.m. tomorrow, that is from the park board, correct? Yeah, there's an order and there's posters uh, throughout the park, uh, you know, outlining exactly that. So it's that's coming from the park board, as, as far as I understand. Right. And who is responsible for making sure that this gets done? Like you mentioned that ideally it would be good if the police don't have to be involved here, but if it's not the police, who, who will be enforcing it? Do we know? Well, my, my understanding is that the, the manager, uh, Donnie Rosa of, of the park board, um, it's uh, her, you know, jurisdiction and, 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 uh, authority, I guess, to to determine what what they do. But they'll if they want to compel people to move, if they want you know to move people on unwillingly, um, they're going to have to seek an injunction from the courts and, and then proceed from there, right? 
Oh, man. Does that mean it could drag on beyond the deadline tomorrow, potentially? Oh, yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. I mean, I'm, I guarantee you it, it won't be all wrapped up and done by the end of tomorrow. It, it'll right. be um, several days, I'm sure, until what makes, we see, you know significant what, change. What makes you say that? Well, just because I know there's people who are unwilling to leave and history, yeah. I know in terms of Oppenheimer Park and Crab Park and what happened there and those uh, eviction or relocation processes, th- those played out over a number of days and weren't, weren't done on by a certain deadline. Right. Speaking of Jamie McLaren, he's a lawyer. He's a resident of the Strathcona neighborhood about the tent city there in Strathcona Park, uh, supposedly to, set to be cleared out tomorrow can you um can you briefly describe jamie what this has been like in the neighborhood over over nearly a year yeah it, it's been exhausting you know and and certainly some neighbors have, have dealt with it in different ways and have been more uh, sensitive to the changes that came from the encampment and you know and as traumatic as it's been for house residents in the neighborhood it's been obviously more traumatic for for people who are living in the park you know there's been deaths and and disease or dysentery and, and um, you know, all sorts of violence and, and fires and, you know, all sorts of crime, um, property crime that's arisen, um, you know, directly or indirectly because of this. So it, it's been really unfortunate. And there's certainly no one will be celebrating in the next few weeks, but it'll hopefully we'll, we'll come to some sense of peace in the, in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can certainly, I've talked to a lot of people in that neighborhood over the last year and, a sense of relief, I think, is a good way to describe it. Like, I think people are just hoping there'll be some sort of resolution here soon. But it sounds to me like what you're describing is that there's some people just may refuse to go. Like, for the people who may possibly refuse to leave tomorrow, is it because they've got nowhere to go, they've not been offered a place, or are, they, or are there some people going to make a political statement just to not leave? Yeah, well, if you if you listen to government, they'll tell you that everyone's been offered a place to, to live. Now, that yeah. may not be the place of their, you know, first choice place. Um, so there are some people, just from what I'm hearing, who, who prefer to, to sleep rough and, and not go indoors. There are people who feel like they shouldn't be compelled to, to live somewhere. They should have absolute free choice of, of where they live, even if it's a free place to live. So, you know, there's all sorts of different reasons. Um, some people have, uh, you know, communities that they like to, you know, they like to maintain the community of Strathcona Park encampment. Um, so that's unlikely to happen. But different reasons for different people, I think. Okay, last question for you, Jamie. What do you think of the way the park board has handled this over the last almost a year? Yeah, well, a, a slow start, you know, and, and, a, and a pretty shameful start, I'd say. You know, that the didn't react nearly quickly enough, you know, sort of created a, an issue out of Oppenheimer Park that, that grew and festered in Strathcona Park. But of late, and, and certainly since I think Donnie Rosa has been at the helm at the, the park board, it, it's been pretty impressive and, and quite sensitive mm. and, and strategic about how they've gone about this. So, it, you know, uh, a passing grade in, in, the, in the more recent times after a, a really abysmal start. Wow. Okay. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. Jamie, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. All right, that's Jamie McLaren there. He's a lawyer. He's a resident of the Strathcona neighborhood. And speaking about the encampment at Strathcona Park, the deadline tomorrow to clear out of the park. That is the deadline was set by the park board. We'll see what happens. It sounds like there are some people there who will not want to leave. 
We'll see what happens tomorrow. 10 a.m. is the deadline. Let's talk about sexual misconduct in the Canadian military now. Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan announcing a new independent external review into sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. That announcement came this morning. Here is the Minister of Defense. Madam Louise Arbour, former Supreme Court Justice, has agreed to lead an independent external comprehensive review of her institutional policies and culture. Over the coming months, we expect Madam Arbour to provide concrete recommendations on how the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defence can set up an independent external reporting system for defence team members that meets the needs of those who have been impacted by sexual misconduct. Okay, Harjit Sajjan, the the federal defense minister there speaking this morning, announcing another review into sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. Let's check in with the opposition now. NDP MP Randall Garrison joins me. He represents Esquimalt in the House of Commons. I'm pleased he could take the time. Randall, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Okay, what do you think of this announcement? Well, I, I want to start by saying I have the utmost respect for former Justice Arbour, and I think she will provide useful advice to the government, and it's clear they need some advice. But I have to be cynical about the timing. Uh, The question in front of us right now is why, when they had a similar report from Madam Justice Deschamps in 2015, which they failed to implement, and why, when they knew there were serious sexual misconduct allegations against the Chief of Defence Staff in 2018, they did nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was getting like deja vu listening to this report today going like, man, they've done this before. I mean, this is like another report. We already had like a very high ranking former judge um, do an investigation into this before. Let me play another clip here for you from the defense from the defense minister speaking this morning, talking about how this new review has to be independent. This system needs to be focused on those who have been impacted by misconduct, be responsive to their needs and be outside of the chain of command and the Department of National Defense. Okay, speaking there about, I guess, a review system into sexual misconduct in the military, how it's got to be independent, it's got to be outside of the chain of command uh, of the the national forces. I mean, a lot of people have been calling for this for a long time. Randall, your thoughts? Well, that's exactly what Justice Deschamps recommended six years ago. Exactly. (laughs) And so uh, the question for me still is, if we're going to go move forward, and we, and we must, and we have you know, a disturbingly large number of cases of sexual misconduct and, in fact, sexual assault within the Canadian military, so we have to do something to root this out. But I don't see how we can move forward this time when people at the top have demonstrated they don't, either don't understand what sexual misconduct is or they're not prepared to act. And so how can we trust this minister now? to take the necessary actions when he's failed to do so the whole time he's been the minister. Yeah, we've got allegations of sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces going all the way to the very top of the military command structure. General Jonathan Vance under investigation here, and there's been a lot of fingers pointed at this particular defense minister about what he knew, when he knew it, and what he did about it when it comes to misconduct at the very top ranks uh, of the armed forces. What do you think about that, like this the performance of this particular defense minister as he makes this announcement today? Well, where we're at right now is the minister says, well, I did the right thing. I referred it to the prime minister's office. So somebody needs to tell us here, is it then the prime minister and his office who dropped the ball? Or is that in fact not true? And the minister is the one who's responsible because we do know he was told directly about allegations of sexual misconduct against the sitting chief of defense staff and let him stay in position three more years. 
And part of that position was he was charged with rooting out sexual misconduct in the military. If it weren't so serious, it would almost be ironic. Yeah. Do do you think that this this man is I'm surprised that he's still in that position that perhaps Trudeau. I don't know if Trudeau ever considered moving him or or moving him out of there. But I, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on the ability of this minister right now to deliver on these promises today of fundamental reform? he can do it. I mean, uh, unless, right, unless he wants to tell us that he tried to do this and the prime minister's the one who said, no, we're not going to remove Vance, we're not going to move forward. If that's the case, that's the only way out for this minister. But even if that's true, he's, I don't think he's going to say it. So in our system, a minister is responsible for a, a department, and the minister of defense was who the chief of defense staff reported to, and so it ultimately falls in the lap of Harjit Sajjan as the minister. Yeah, and what do you think is the there, there are so many elements of this problem. I mean, there's, there's, there are reports of widespread sexual misconduct in the military. We've heard about women in the armed forces who have complained about discrimination, harassment, and even worse. And then allegations of cover-ups and that the, the, the complaints are not adequately investigated or they're not independently investigated. Like, how big is this problem? Well, I think there's two aspects to it. One are the, of course, individual serving women who uh, suffered from sexual assault and sexual misconduct, and there needs to be good support for them. But there's the larger question of how can women serve equally in the Canadian forces in a culture that tolerates this kind of sexual misconduct? Uh, They can't, and I don't think we should lose sight of that. This is about equality inside the Canadian forces. It's not about accusing every male in the Canadian forces of being guilty of sexual misconduct. What it's about is rooting out the culture that lets those who are guilty get away with it. Yeah, I think you need more women in charge. I think there should be more women ad, uh, advance through the officer ranks in the military. Here is uh, Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, talking today about how the review will examine the promotion system. Have a listen. She will also examine performance evaluation and promotion system in the Canadian Armed Forces with a focus on how leaders are selected and trained. Okay, what do you think of that? And Do you think we need more women in command roles in the military? Well, again, uh, the minister had the opportunity to appoint a very senior, distinguished woman, General Whitecross, as the chief of defense staff. Uh, The sitting chief of defense staff, Vance, was at the end of his normal term. So if the minister really believed that, why did he let General Whitecross go into retirement instead of appointing her as chief of staff? He could have said, without impugning the integrity of Vance at all, without the investigation, thank you for your service, your time is up, and I'm going to appoint a woman because I have a very well-qualified woman ready to step into that position. He didn't okay. do it. Randall, thank you for coming on today. Okay, it's a pleasure. NDP MP Randall Garrison there, the opposition reacting to the announcement from the government here. Another review into sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. The 20th annual Docs of Documentary Film Festival scheduled to kick off next week. One of the feature films this year is The Gig Is Up, which examines the gig economy and how it has transformed workplaces and work lifestyles. Got uh, documentary filmmaker Shannon Walsh standing by to discuss the movie. First, let's have a little listen to the trailer here for The Gig Is Up. We are your asset. If you want to make money, you have to know this money is going to be through us. We'll replace the tyranny of the boss with tyranny of an algorithm. All right, a little bit of the trailer there for the documentary film, The Gig Is Up. And documentary filmmaker Shannon Walsh joins me now. Hi, Shannon. 
Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Congratulations on the film. Uh, I think it's very timely. This is a super, uh, super topical and important issue. We talk about it a lot here on the show. What made you want to make this film? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like a lot of us, um, we really realize we've become quite glued to our phones. You know, that's where we get everything. And, um, you know, from our social life to these days, even our food, you know. So um, but what were the stories of the workers behind it? It's so often left out, like who are the humans behind the app? So that kind of set me on the journey to figure out um, what's really happening um, in this whole tech industry um, that we use so so frequently every day. Yeah. So, what did you find out when you talk to people who work in the, in these sort of gig jobs? And I, the ones that come to mind a lot are people who are driving for Uber, or maybe they're delivering food for Skip the Dishes or something. Like when you talk to people who actually do these jobs, what did you find out? Yeah, it's. I mean, a lot of us feel like we kind of know what it's like because we've maybe chatted with our Uber driver or whatever. Um, and, you know, we have this idea, this kind of flexible work that maybe, you know, you're doing part time. But the reality is pretty different when you really poke behind the scenes. I mean, the reality is we're also rating these folks a lot. And those yeah. ratings can lead to like instant deactivation. A lot of people are extremely fearful. So you might talk to a driver who says one thing, but I mean, is he going to tell you the truth? Um uh, because, you know, you can get deplatformed, which is what they call it when they just kick you right off the app um, entirely. So issues like that, like injuries on the job that people are facing, and just this entire shadow economy of people doing work on apps that we don't even see that are, you know, training AI that are um, behind some of the apps we use every day that, that we don't even realize are mediated by human intelligence. And, and there's people um, in the shadows there. Right. Speaking to filmmaker Shannon Walsh about her new documentary, The Gig is Up. It's coming up at the Doxa Film Festival here in Vancouver. I mean, when you think about these jobs, I mean, in some ways they sound they sound great. I mean, you've got flexible hours. You don't have to go into the office. You can kind of be your own boss. Yeah. But when you dig into it, and I know you've looked at these jobs like around the world, um, like are people, like how much money can you make in these jobs? Like are people actually making making good money and making a good living in some of these jobs or not? Yeah, I mean, there's such a range of work, for one thing, that I should be clear. But, um, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a bit of a bait and switch going on. You're seduced into it by this idea, exactly like you said, flexibility, being your own boss. Um, and the, the rates seem high at first. Like, for example, just talking about Uber, often the rates that you come in with um, are suddenly changed. Like drivers I talked to in San Francisco had their pay rates cut radically um, more than in half and the consumer doesn't even realize that's happening but by the time that those rates go down you're locked in Um, you've got a car loan you've got you know uh, other situations that are happening and so many people end up having to work on multiple apps you've got your app open all the time you know i met a guy in nigeria who literally sleeps with his computer because when it bings he has to work and it's just day like day and night so this idea that you're sort of like oh there's all this freedom is 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 a lie unfortunately for so many of the people we talk to there's a lot of uh you end up being really tethered to the app yeah yeah like well maybe there is some freedom if it's just like a side hustle for you if it's just something you're doing in your spare time but for a lot of people like this is their full-time job 
Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like the full, the kind of formal economy, as we all know, has cast a lot of people out. And lots of people I talked to were, you know, people who are caring for elderly parents or at home with kids or, you know, a whole range of folks, um, people with disabilities, even felons in the U.S. One of the guys we talked to who, you know, you can't get any other kind of work and you can use these online apps. So there's all that category, too, but it's really a huge range of types of, of folks that are um, logging in and, and working yeah. this way. And it's just going to continue to increase for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, like, I think it's going to get even bigger. That's why I think your film is so timely right now. This is just becoming a bigger part of the economy. But And there's also a lot of countries that are taking a more... I guess, critical look at these jobs and deciding whether they should be more closely regulated. Like, should these people yeah. be legally recognized as, as independent contractors or are they em- employees that should have more rights? You know? Absolutely. Do, yeah. Do yeah. you get into, the, the you get into any of that? Yeah, I mean, we do. We follow some some um, of the folks who have been organizing, especially in the U.S., and they've had some big wins. The courts side with workers so often here in Toronto as well. There was some really big wins here. But what we see is that then how do we enforce those wins that, that they get? Sometimes the apps just close and um, and leave, for example, like what happened in Toronto. And so we really kind of, as a, I think, a culture, uh, like we need to have a conversation about this. This kind of work's not going away. And definitely yeah. regulation is going to be part of the story. But we have to be aware of what's actually going on if we're going to make it better, I think. And I think we can. I think it's possible. Okay, for people who are interested in seeing the film, Shannon, uh, the movie is featured in the upcoming DOXA Film Festival here in Vancouver. Like, how can people see your film? Yeah, so DOXA, you can buy tickets online. They're already available, and then you can stream it right at home, which is really awesome this year. So you buy a ticket online, and it gives you a code that you can screen the film with. Get, you get a link. And it's also playing at the PNE at the drive-in on May 13th um, at uh, 7 p.m. I think you can buy tickets there, too. There's a limited number of car spots that they're oh. doing, like, the special event, which is going to be pretty cool. I'm really excited about that. So I think, uh, yeah, you can come with a carload of people, and it's a ticket price per carload. So kind of a good okay. throwback. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, in the times of COVID, every, everything's right. changing. Um, very right. uh, very uh, timely idea for a film. Congratulations with it, and thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Take Thank care. you. Thank you. Shannon Walsh there. She is a filmmaker. Her new documentary is... The gig is up. Looking at the gig economy, it is a feature film at the upcoming DOXA Documentary Film Festival, which kicks off next week. The film's streaming online. Uh, search that. Search for their uh, their website for more details if you want to check that movie out.